So it's traditional to begin a Buddhist teaching by um, going for refuge and setting um, the right motivation. Um, there are a lot of different ways of going for refuge. There are different types of poems and sort of aphorisms to remind ourselves what we're going, remind ourselves that we're going for refuge in what are called the three jewels. Uh, the Buddha, the Dharma, and Sangha. We have uh, one refuge up here in the Dharma Center. It, it says, I take refuge in awakening. I take refuge in the path of awakening. I take refuge in my companions on the path of awakening. Uh, when I go for refuge, I like to think about what the three jewels mean to me so that I'm cultivating like a real experience, a real felt sense of what the, the jewels are and what refuge means. Uh, refuge means to um, what can protect you, what can provide shelter, what can provide safety in a world which is more or less outside of our immediate control. Um, you know, we, the, we go for refuge in ordinary ways all the time to things like money and our career and if our house was on fire, we'd go for refuge to the fire department. If we're in trouble, we'd be, maybe we'd go for refuge to the police or a lawyer. But these kinds of ordinary refuges are fallible. They're unreliable. They're uncertain, as we know, because there wouldn't be a, a Black Lives Matters a Black Lives Matters movement if we could really take refuge in the police, for example. So the, in, in Buddhist philosophy, we go for refuge to the three jewels because the three jewels can't ever fail us. The three jewels are the true forms of shelter, the true things that can protect us. And so the first of the three jewels is the Buddha. And we have these various um, artistic representations of Buddhas. We have statues and paintings um, that represent the enlightened state, uh, a state of mind that is completely purified, uh, a, a being that is perfectly loving, perfectly compassionate, um, somebody who doesn't have any problems, doesn't have any, like, doesn't lose their temper, isn't easily provoked, um, and because of that, they're able to be infinitely generous to other people. They're always available. They're always giving. And we're not just going for refuge to the Buddha, say, okay, good for you, Buddha, thanks for getting enlightened. We're, we're going, going for refuge means we're, we're seeking safety and shelter and the idea that this is a state of mind that we can accomplish ourselves. And the, the Buddha didn't just do it and said, see you later, guys, I'm out of here. The Buddha said, you can do this too. Anybody can do this if you put the steps into practice. And that's what the Dharma is, the second of the three jewels, is the, the set of instructions left behind by the Buddha. And the Gelugpas really love their lists of instructions. We have thousands and thousands of pages of lists of instructions <laughs> that are all things that were either uh, spoken by a Buddha, maybe Siddhartha Gautama, the historical Buddha, or uh, other Buddhas, another famous Buddha. In fact, I think the reading tonight has some commentary on something written by Maitreya, who's the next Buddha, the Buddha from the future, which means if you get enlightened, you're going to be Maitreya. 
And, um, but Maitreya, like, teleported from the future to leave instructions behind for us because Buddhas aren't limited by time and space. So the Dharma is the things that we can do, the, the, the things we can put into practice, the steps that we can take, the, the practices that we can utilize to gradually shift our mind so that we can be in the state of Buddhahood, a state of perfect equipoise, unlimited love and compassion. And the Sangha, the third of the three jewels, so we're going for refuge to the Dharma because we are taking solace in the fact that there's something we can do, that we're not stuck in a life of uncertainty and confusion and emotional reactivity. And the Sangha are the community of people who are doing this together with us. So the Sangha is everybody in this room, people who, um, instead of going to the bar or staying home and watching whatever's on Netflix tonight, decided that it's worthwhile to come way out past the airport to the Dharma Center to think about these kinds of things and hang out with other people who want to think about these kinds of things. Um, and also the, the Sangha is um, the, the, that other beings have done this before us. So it's not just Siddhartha Gautama, the historical Buddha, but it's also that, that other beings have done this and that those beings are accessible to us. And the degree to which we can see Buddhas in our world, or bodhisattvas near Buddhas, uh, the degree to which we can see them and interact with them has to do with our uh, subjective state of awareness. Um, you, Buddhas are not somebody like if you just go to the right town in the right part of the right town, you're going to meet a Buddha. A Buddha is someone, your ability to perceive Buddhas has to do with how hard you're looking for them. And that's why we have to practice the Dharma, because practicing the Dharma is what changes the way that our mind works so that we're more able to see the Buddhas that are already all around us. So we go for refuge to the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. And then we set motivation. And um, this is mostly to kind of dispel wrong motivations. Um, I guess in Tibet, being a Dharma practitioner was like a career path. And so people would become a Dharma practitioner because that's like how you became famous. And so um, in, in traditional Tibetan Buddhism, they say teaching for money or teaching for fame or teaching to get other people to like you are all wrong reasons to teach or wrong reasons to practice um, or wrong reasons to meditate. You know, they say that... Uh, there's a, there's a story about a, a meditator who was a total world renunciate. He didn't own anything. He went and sealed himself in a cave for long periods of retreat, but he didn't have a lot of progress because when he was mostly meditating was on, what he was mostly meditating on was thinking about how everybody out there must be so impressed with what an awesome meditator he is sealed up in his cave up there. So that's an example of wrong, medit of wrong, of wrong motivation. And so you can spend six years in retreat and not really do anything if you're like secretly in the back of your mind hoping that when you get out people are like wow 
what an impressive meditator you are. So um, setting the right motivation is realizing that the purpose of our life is to help others reduce their suffering and to help others be happier. This is the um, this is the bodhisattva wish, the bodhisattva vow, the bodhisattva motivation, bodhicitta, the the wish to become fully enlightened, so that I can be of greater service to others. And um, this isn't just altruism for the sake of being nice; it's actually pragmatic because the world that we experience is subjective, meaning that. The way that we experience the world is a quality of our mind. Uh, a qual- the, the qualities that we experience in phenomena are qualities of our perception, not qualities of the objects per se. And so if we have undesirable objects in the world, if we have things coming up and, and irritating us, things that we don't want to have happen, the way to change those is, the way to change, is to change the way we perceive them. And so even, uh, even problems can be opportunities for learning and growth and um, learning to have comp- more compassion for others, learning to uh, develop forgiveness. Um, people who provoke you are an opportunity to develop patience, uh, the ability to not lose your temper and not get angry when provoked. So even the things that we don't like, by a shift of our a shift of our perception can turn them from being a a self-existent problem that's in my face right now into something that at least gives me an opportunity to learn, at least gives me an opportunity to practice patience for a little bit longer, at least gives me an opportunity to to think of the other person as suffering instead of just being a jerk, you know? And because of that, to change our perception is to change the way that we perceive the rea- reality, is thus to change reality itself. Bear with me. I know this is a lot just for setting our motivation before the class even starts. But there, therefore, if we want to live in a world that is peaceful and kind and loving and compassionate, we have to perceive the world as a place that is peaceful and kind and loving and compassionate. And in order to perceive the world that way, we have to embody those principles to as great, to as great a degree as we possibly can. And to apply love and compassion to an unlimited degree, to an unlimited number of people, is very, very close to complete Buddhahood. And so we develop kindness and compassion not just out of a sense of altruism or, or because it makes me a nicer guy or something like that, but because it's actually changing the, the way that I perceive the world. So if to, to achieve Buddhahood, I have to want it more for others than I do for myself. And that is why we have to set a strong motivation for what is called bodhicitta, the wish to, the, the intense, obsessive wish to become enlightened so that I can better be more available for others. The topic of this class tonight is um, twofold. 
The, the main topic is the five problems of meditation and the eight corrections. The text that we are drawing this from is, um, just to, to show you that I'm not making this up off the top of my head here and now, the text is um, a commentary on the chart. So you also have a chart as one of the, as one of the handouts. So the handout is a commentary on the chart. The commentary was written by a gentleman named Trijong Rinpoche, who lived from 1901 to 1981. So he's a contemporary Buddhist teacher. And um, Trijong Rinpoche is close to my heart because he is in my immediate lineage. He's my teacher's teacher's teacher. Lama Marut, Lama Marut's teacher. One of one, Lama Marut's teacher was Geshe Michael. Geshe Michael's teacher was Ken Rinpoche, who fled Tibet during the Chinese occupation and taught in Howell, New Jersey, of all places. And Ken Rinpoche's teacher was Trijong Rinpoche. So uh, I like Trijong because he's in my immediate lineage. And um, he's also the tutor. He was also one of the two main tutors of the current Dalai Lama, 14th Dalai Lama, Tenzin Gyatso. So um, he is the real deal. Um, so we, the uh, material is being drawn from the reading, and you are more than welcome to take the handout home with you and read it on your own after, uh, after the class. So we are going to talk today about the five problems of meditation and the eight corrections. Um, then the second half of the class, we're going to cover part of the Lam Rim, which is the the Buddhist enlightenment engine, the assembly line process to start from suffering schmuck and end up on the other side as an enlightened being. Um, we're going to uh, cover the middle section called the steps shared with those of medium scope. And then in the next class in two weeks, we're going to actually walk through the chart in detail and break down what each of the steps uh, mean. It's in the reading, so you can actually read ahead and, and do that on your own, but that's what the next class is going to be. And then we're also going to cover the steps shared with uh, practitioners of greater scope. So that's a preview, a teaser for the future. So the five problems of meditation, and each one has one or more corrections. The, the five problems are laziness, losing the object, dullness, and agitation. I think of those as two different problems, but they're included here uh, together because they have the same antidote. Um, failing to take action, and taking action where none is needed. The first of these is laziness. In Tibetan, the, the Tibetan word for laziness is great because it, it sounds like what it is, lelo. <laughs> so that's your Tibetan vocabulary word, lelo. And uh, laziness, of course, um, comes, you know, mainly in the form of 
I don't really feel like it today. I'll meditate tomorrow or, you know, I'm going to check some emails and then I'll meditate after that. But then, oh, it's now it's time for breakfast and now I have to go to work. And Or um, just not thinking that it's that important in your life. Um, you know, there's always, there's always something else that's like a little bit higher priority. Um, so the antidotes to laziness are, um, first of all, understanding the benefits of meditation. And um, nowadays we have the mindfulness craze is all the, all the rage, Silicon Valley, because everybody, the research now shows that if you teach your employees mindfulness, you can boost productivity by up to 20%, <laughs> which of course means that the motivation for teaching meditation is not to help those people relax, but to extract a little more value from them before they, their <coughs> kidneys fail and their teeth fall out and they die young. Um, so understanding the benefits. The benefits of meditation are not to boost productivity by 20%. That's not one of the main reasons to meditate. Although, you will find things like your concentration improves and um, you're better able to notice your emotions fluctuating a little bit so you can stop it before you freak out. This has been a really big med benefit of meditation in my life is like noticing when I'm irritated and being able to get out of a situation before I lose it and start shouting at the other person. Notice when I'm being provoked and, and say, oh, I'm being provoked right now. And not say, that son of a gun is provoking me and I'm gonna give him what for. I think this is really important. Um, I guess Tibetans were like more emotionally stable. They like when when they were introduced to the idea of low self-esteem, it was like hard for Tibetans to like wrap their head around it. Like everybody was like kind of okay with themselves. And the idea that of the idea of like self-hatred or something like that or low self-esteem was not part of the not part of the culture. And so um, there's not a lot of talk about using I mean, other than anger, uh, there's and jealousy. You know, um, you know, being unhappy, being unhappy when somebody else gets something that they want, and being happy when somebody gets something that they don't want. You know, jealousy and covetousness. Um, but like the like, I find noticing noticing depressive states of mind and being able to notice them, first of all, and apply antidotes to them. Uh, uh, I personally have gained a lot of benefit from meditation for that, from that. Um, so, you know, those are like more pragmatic benefits and like that's a good reason to get started because you'll actually like have immediate benefits. But the, the real reasons, I mean the real benefits are that you'll learn to stabilize your mind you'll be able to you'll learn how to be able to put your mind where you want it to be and keep it there uh, as opposed to thinking about something and then thinking about 15 other things in the next 12 seconds um, and saying what was I thinking about before I was trying to concentrate I was trying to figure out this problem or whatever but like my mind is just decide my mind is on its own uh, 
it's on its own trajectory. And Lama Lean is going to be here tomorrow night, and her topic is taming, I think, the monkey mind. Dancing with monkey mind. Dancing with the monkey mind. Great. Taming it is not that effective. Although, you will notice on the chart that the monkey is one of the main characters on the chart. But you get to say goodbye to the monkey around step 26. <laughs> 25. Um, <laughs> uh, you don't tame it, you just like let it go. Um, so being able to put your mind where you want it to be and keep it there. Um, and this is important because ultimately we want to be able to keep our mind unwaveringly on things that really matter. Um, so feel attracted to meditation by understanding its benefits as the first antidote to laziness. Recognizing that that there are good things that will come if you practice this. It's just like learning an instrument. You can't just play the piano once a week and, and think that you're going to get good. Um, you have to practice every day for half an hour, an hour, four hours, eight hours, if you want to become a virtuoso. Um, and then from there, you decide that you want to be a good meditator. That's making the commitment, you know, making the agreement to yourself, setting the intention and, and sticking to it. Um, and then making the efforts. That's the practice that I just mentioned. Um, overcoming laziness by saying, all right, I'm just going to sit on the cushion from 7 o'clock to 7.30 every morning without fail. And even though we're, we will learn from the stages that for the first little while, it's not going to feel anything like meditating. It's just going to be realizing how freaking bonkers my mind is. And it says in the reading, you'll read it, a lot of people, when they start to meditate, they're like, they think their mind is getting worse when they start to meditate. But the reality is you're just noticing for the first time that your mind is jerking you around continuously, whether you notice it or not. So um, that's a, a cautionary statement that when you do start, it will, you will feel like you're getting crazier. Um, but, it's, but you're actually beginning to, like, put a little barrier around that and, and, and yoke it in. Here they have the, they say that you need to, uh, on, the, on the chart you see the, the, the elephant and the monkey are running off and you are way the hell back here chasing them saying, where the hell are you going? And so one of the first things you need to do is uh, put a leash on the elephant, your mind. Put a leash on your, on the, on your mind and say, okay, we're going to start trying to go where I want you to go instead of you dragging me along behind you. And then if you make the efforts needed, you will experience the pleasure and ease that comes from developing some skill at meditation. You, your mind will start to feel more relaxed uh, if you're doing it properly. It's also possible to stress yourself out. Um, be, caught, you know, be careful, always be easeful. And we'll actually talk about that in a minute. But um, here's the, uh, here's the, you know, something to entice you is that if you practice and you make efforts that your mind will become easier to handle and that you will experience states of physical pleasure from sitting down and meditating. 
The second problem of meditation is losing the object. And um, the object of meditation is um, what you decide at the beginning you're going to think about. Um, I've talked about meditation in previous classes, and those, there are recordings of those online. Um, the website is on the outline if you want to look them up. But, um, you know, the main type, there are a few different types of meditation. One, uh, one of them is um, review, and that's the first stage of, the, of remembering the instructions, is when sitting down to meditate, you just review the, the, the instructions for meditating. Um, just so that you actually have them memorized. And then the next stage is analysis. And that's when you say, does this make sense or does it not make sense? Does this, Buddha always, he made a really clear um, that people should not just take his word for what he's saying. Don't just believe in, just don't, be, don't just believe in the Buddha. He is, the system is a scientific methodology in which the laboratory is your own mind. And it's not something that works if you believe in it per se. It works if you test it. It works because you test it. It works because you do the experiments on your own self and then you find out if the results match the assertions. It's the, sci it's the scientific method. And if the results don't match the assertions, then you have to look at it from another angle or rework it. And that's what the analysis meditation is. So meditation is not just sitting there and spacing out or trying to just make your mind go complete blank. Um, at the early stages of meditation, you really are concentrating on something specific. Um, and so that's remembering the instructions, bringing the object back to mind, noticing when you're thinking about something other than what you set your intention to think about, and bringing your mind back to it. Um, there are you know, body-based meditations, like the shamatha practice of... Um, meditating on the phys physical sensations of the breath, and those are specifically for developing concentration um, and developing more and more uh, a more and more subtle capacity for concentration. So, in in either case, setting a, setting your meditation object before you start, and then noticing when your mind leaves the meditation object and bringing your mind back to the object. Um, one of the things that it does say in the reading is that um, even meditating on a virtue meditating on a virtuous object can sometimes be an obstacle to meditation if the if the virtuous object is not the one that you set as your meditation object in the beginning. All right, do you know what I'm saying? If you uh, if you say I'm going to meditate on compassion, and then your mind is like, well, I'd rather meditate on emptiness. Um, then that you're not really meditating because you're letting the you're still letting the monkey mind decide where the heck it wants to go, and so bring it back to the compassion meditation. Bring it back to whatever the object was. So that means both learning the instructions well um, and analyzing the instructions so that they actually make sense to you, and you're meditating on something that's sensible, and you're not just doing it out of, you know, faith in some magical whatever. The next, uh, the next obstacle 
next obstacles are dullness and agitation, um, both gross and subtle. Um, so dullness, um, here's, here's like how to induce dullness uh, if, you, if you want to experience it in the grossest form possible. Um, meditate at night after a long busy day, eat a bunch of pizza or pasta and maybe have some ice cream before you meditate. Turn the heat up so it's like 75 or 78 degrees in your room and then turn down all the lights and then try to meditate. And that's how to induce dullness. Um, but of course what it really means is you're just there and you're kind of dozing off or just feeling drowsy. Um, and then agitation is, of course, hyperactivity, anxiety. Either you're, you're twitchy and you're having a hard time sitting still, but also mentally, it's, uh, agitation is when the mind is like, oh, let's think about this, and let's think about this, and let's think about this. And, you know, we, I think we have uh, especially problems with agitation. We have new, exciting forms of agitation in our mind as our neural pathways are programmed to react to constant notifications on our phones and on our computer screens. And um, we're, we are getting hardwired for agitation in our um, technologized smartphone society. So that means we have to work that much harder in our meditation practice. And again, here's another great benefit of, me of meditation is as an antidote to that spastic, uh, reactive mind of like every notification is, is equally important. When, you know, our nervous systems evolved to react to notifications because notifications generally meant I'm about to get eaten by a predator. And so physiologically, we react to uh, Twitter updates and Facebook updates with the same physiological kind of, this is important, I have to pay attention to it because my life depends on it. And we want to chill that down a little bit. So um, that's another practical benefit of meditation that you can start to apply in your life right away is like toning down that reactivity of the, of the notification lifestyle. But we, it also means we have to work that much harder in meditation because um, we, we are dealing with this on an ongoing basis checking our email 10 times or 50 times a day. Um, but dullness and agitation also come in subtle forms. These are things that are going to come up um, as you gain more experience and more facility with meditation. Um, subtle dullness is, for example, having the meditation object, but it's a little hazy. It's not vivid. It's not intense. And subtle agitation is... You're holding the object, but in the back of your mind, you're also thinking about what's for breakfast, you know? Like, you can kind of be thinking about two things at once, where you're like, oh, no, I've got the object, it's right there, but your mind is like, what's for breakfast? What's for breakfast? And you're like, no, no, I'm on the object. And so eventually, though, you want to conquer both subtle dullness and subtle agitation so that you can hold it, the object. And that's what the, uh, the um, antidotes are. Uh, watchfulness which is your capacity, a, a special skill that you develop, which is specifically noticing, am I on the object or not? And how much energy does it take to pull me back to the object? 
And so um, the, the skills to develop are fixation, clarity, and intensity. Fixation is the ability to stay on the object. Clarity is, is that kind of sense of is it, um, is it vivid or is it kind of hazy around the edges? And then intensity is can I put laser-like concentration on this object? Um, subtle dullness and agitation are not things that you need to think a lot about as a beginner meditator. You just want to like notice if notice when you haven't been on the object for 30 seconds or five minutes or 20 minutes and say, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be thinking about this thing. Um, and I'm not being facetious. Like That's what the instructions say. They, the first part is stay on the object for a few moments and then, oh, you're off on other things. And then, oh, I've noticed. And then gently bring it back and stay on the object for a few moments and then lose it. And then those few moments get a little bit wider and a little bit wider. And eventually it gets to the point where you're mostly on the object and then you're off for a few moments and you notice right away and bring it back. And then eventually you're on the object, but you're just trying to make sure that you have the clarity and intensity. Um, but that takes a lot of practice. You know, I, I can't even, I can't say that I am working out the, on those subtle ones at all, personally. Um, but I just got laid off, so hopefully I'll have a lot more time to meditate. Um, uh, failing to take action, and um, the correction is take action. Um, applying the corrections for mental dullness. Um, when you notice dullness, tighten up the concentration. Um, if that doesn't work, each, this is like a, a sequence, right? First, uh, tighten up your concentration. You're like, oh, not on the object, bring it back. Um, if that's not working and you're like too, um, too dull, like just feeling dopey and having a hard time concentrating, like didn't get enough sleep last night or whatever, um, trying to meditate while you're hungover. I mean, who hasn't been there? Um, shift concentration to an uplifting object. So this would be like if you're trying to meditate on something like emptiness or compassion or something like that, um, shifting your mind to an uplifting object would be like having a spiritual uplifting imagery on your altar like we have all these tankas that are quite cool but there's lots of different types of you know yantras and mandalas and different types of imagery that um, inspire us to practice a spiritual life um, having something like that and and opening your eyes and meditating on the the visual stimulus of the object that's right in front of you um, just staring at the yantra or the mandala or the uh, painting of, of uh, your favorite Buddha. There are lots of different Buddhas, so you, you can pick your favorite one and go with that. There's some, there's some really cool Buddhas that we don't necessarily have in here. But, um, you know, some of them are like rock stars. They're really, they're like badass, and you can like really, I think so. Um, then and then return to your object. So you open your eyes, look at the image, um, visualize your guru in the form of an enlightened being, etc., etc. And then come back to your object. Use it to brighten yourself up, get a little bit invigorated, and then say, "Okay, this is the object I'm supposed to be on. I'm going to go back to that." And then if that even doesn't work, then you actually break your meditation, get up and stretch, uh, do some jumping jacks, run around your room a few times. You know, get your heart rate up, 
and then sit back down and try to meditate again for a few more minutes. So they're practical steps, right? It's not like, oh, that's, that, that's kind of obvious, right? Like if you're sitting on the cushion and you're dozing off, like get up and get your heart rate up and say, okay, I can do this. Because we already uh, understand the benefits. We've already decided we want to be a good meditator. We're already willing to make the efforts. So we want to keep trying. Um, and then mental agitation. Um, um, this is when we're just too busy, right? Like thinking about the 20 unread emails and how I've got to reply to this person and I'm going to have this problem at work later or my car's got to go to the shop or blah, 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 you know? Um, so the first antidote for mental agitation is to loosen up, relax, let that stuff go. It'll wait until after the meditation. I, I, when I'm feeling this way, I like to imagine that I put all of that stuff like into a box and I put the box outside the door and I close the door and I say, okay, it's in the box. It's right there. Uh, and I'll get to it when I'm done. You know, for the next 20 minutes, I'm not going to do anything about that stuff. So it can just stay outside the door. Um, and if that doesn't work, shift your mind to a sobering object. Like your imminent death. <laughs> because uh, death is a major obstacle to, to meditation. Um, you can only you only have so much time you only have so much time uh to develop some meditative skill and um and you know frankly where the rubber meets the road is can you meditate through the dying process mm -hmm. while your body is falling apart and your loved ones are being ripped away from you and your universe is being destroyed in an apocalyptic annihilation can you meditate through that and remember that what you're experiencing is subjective and that your ability to keep your mind focused on love and compassion and emptiness, uh, the emptiness is the lack of self-nature to phenomena, your ability to understand how the universe is working while maintaining a loving heart and a calm state of mind and being able to maintain that concentration perfectly through the dying process is how you determine if you're going to have a, a favorable rebirth or an unfavorable rebirth. It all is lined, everything is leading up to that moment. Um, they talk about how you have like eon of like galaxy sized bundles of karma weighing you down and stuff like that. But really, karma is a, a flow, it's not really an accumulation. It's an accumulation in the sense that our habits have a lot of weight pushing us forward. But it all comes down to the last moment, the karmic seed that fires off as your consciousness, as the consciousness of you say your name to yourself ceases to exist. That last karmic seed that fires off is what, direct, is what directs the, the consciousness into its next rebirth. And so being able to meditate and choose which karmic seed fires off is the main event. That's the whole thing. And we call it practice, like you have to practice meditation. Well, that's showtime, you know? That's when they pull back the curtains and say, all right. <laughs> so, realizing that you're going to die, 100% <laughs> for sure, and you don't know when. There's no such thing as an average lifespan for an individual. Any one of us could die on our way home tonight. 
let's hope that that doesn't happen and that we have a lot of time to practice meditation. But that's a, that's a sobering, that's an example of a sobering object. That's probably the most sobering object. Because then you're like, oh, okay, I actually have to practice today. Like, I'm only doing this for a half an hour before I go to my dead-end job and deal with all the problems that are going to piss me off all day long. I'm at least going to spend this period of time trying to learn how to control my mind so that when I die, I can do so lucidly. And then if that doesn't help you calm your agitation, <laughs> uh, go back to a, a, a body-based um, uh, breath meditation. Um, uh, we have in past classes done the the um, meditation posture as a, um, as a guided meditation. Maybe we'll do that today because I think it's a really great meditation to start with because you're just putting your mind into your body and observing your sensations and um, that's a great meditation object because it's easy to find, you know? You don't have to like say, okay, I'm trying to concentrate on this like abstract philosophical concept and analyze it, you're just like, okay, I'm just here and I'm gonna pay attention to the fact that I'm here right now. Okay, and then the last of the five problems of meditation is the opposite of the previous one, which is taking action where none is needed. And this is what can happen with more experienced meditators after you've been applying all these gosh darn antidotes for years learning how to meditate and then when you actually know how to meditate but you're still like oh should i apply this antidote or should i apply this antidote am i am i agitated or am i dull right now is this subtle dullness or is this gross dullness i've got to i've got to brighten up because i'm too dull and if you're doing that that's you're taking action where none is needed and so this is just a um encouragement to the that once you develop some skill with meditation you don't need to micromanage yourself you can actually just meditate The five problems and the eight corrections, ladies and gentlemen. Um, okay, so now in our next couple of minutes that we have left, um, we're going to talk about something that might be worthwhile to meditate on, the long rim. Uh, the long rim is broken into three major segments, the steps shared with practitioners of lesser scope, steps shared with practitioners of medium scope, steps shared with practitioners of greater scope. Um, practitioners of lesser scope, their primary motivation is uh, avoiding a lower rebirth. And so the primary realization that the steps of lesser scope are trying to cultivate is renunciation, which is the recognition that even good things don't really pan out in samsara. Because even the things that you like, either you lose them or they die or you get bored of them or they break or whatever. And so taking, taking refuge in worldly objects is what creates more suffering. And renunciation is realizing that we need to stop being so attached to our stuff and our experiences and our relationships and, our, and the sense that like I'm important, like look at me, um, that that's not going to really bring any kind of lasting satisfaction. And then um, we're going to talk today uh, about the steps shared with practitioners of medium scope. And the practitioners of medium scope are trying to get out of samsara altogether. So practitioners of lower scope are saying, okay, I've got to stop planting bad karma. 
I've got to start planting good karma. This is a metaphor. Um, so that the good karmic seeds will ripen and that I won't be reborn as a dog or a gnat or a hell being, a being trapped in a world of pure ice or pure molten iron or whatever. The hells are gruesome in Buddhism. Like, they're much more terrifying than the Christian hell. There's like 25 of them, and each one is like, oh, this one they flagellate you with barbed wire, and this one they flagellate you, you're walking on broken glass, and this one it's so hot that your feet melt off. (laughs) And uh, it's like, really? Okay. But you see, they're all subjective states, right? If you cultivate anger then your mind is going to force you to live in a world of pure anger, right? And if you cultivate hatred, then you're going to live in a world of pure hatred. They're not, they're not places that you go to. You don't, like, die and then, like, get on the bus to hell, you know? It's like your, your subjective state is what's creating it. Anyway. Um, so practitioners of medium scope are like, okay, having a favorable rebirth would be nice, but really I want to have total peace and total love and total compassion and uh and that's called nirvana um nirvana is a sanskrit word and it means to blow out or to extinguish and um there's a kind of a common misunderstanding that nirvana means that you're like blowing out your mind and that you're in a state of like total neutral it's like this nihilist state of non-referential existence where you're like in a sensory deprivation chamber or something and that's not what it means what it means is to blow out, is to extinguish mental afflictions. Anything that disturbs your calm state of mind, you know? Um, and if we, you know, we're used to mental afflictions like road rage and stuff like that, but mental afflictions are subtle things like whenever you check in with your body, there's always something a little bit uncomfortable. I'm a little too warm, I'm a little too cold. Um, and we just, you know, nirvana is like, I'm, I'm cool. Everything's fine. Like, this person's in my face, but I'm not going to get angry at them. And, like, my body's uncomfortable, but that's just the way it is. I'm not going to, like, get all over-invested in it. Um, so the, the, the main goal of the practitioners of, middle, of medium scope are um, developing... The, developing the urgency to achieve nirvana. Um, and this is uh, establish, which, uh, establish what path leads to nirvana. This is kind of a technical term because there are multiple different, uh, there are multiple different ways that you could practice a spiritual life. You know, there's a lot of different things that you could do with your time that seem uplifting and spiritual. Um, but actually only specific techniques are going to help achieve nirvana. Um, so that's, that's why the Giluk, the Giluk school it has the Lam Rim so well articulated because they're like, you, there's a lot of ways that you can actually make mistakes. You can meditate on objects that aren't going to help you, like the guy who meditated on how famous he was going to be as a meditator when he got, got out of his retreat, you know? Um, so first of all, establishing how to achieve nirvana and then how to do that are to contemplate the nature of, of samsara, the nature of suffering life, to contemplate the causes of suffering life, and to contemplate how to get out of the suffering life. 
And so I'm going to try to blast through this to stay uh, on time. Um, the nature of the suffering life. Being born is uncomfortable. Being a baby and not being able to take care of yourself and having to deal with incarnating yet again is unpleasant. Um, getting old, having your body break down, having your mind break down, eventually you're going to wear out. Getting sick, I mean, do you really need, I mean, if you've ever been sick and you're like, you can't get out of, can't get out of bed in the morning, you can't do the things you want to do, I mean, you don't really have to belabor the point on that one. Dying, um, I think I've belabored the point on that. Um, having to encounter things we don't like, having to lose things that we do like, trying to get what we want and not succeeding. Tell me about it. And, the, and then last but not least, taking on a, a mind, a body, and other parts with, which must suffer. Um, and again, that's like there's always something, always something a little bit irritating happening in our mind. There's always something a little bit uncomfortable happening in our body. Whenever we check in, there's like something, there's always something to be irritated about. Um, so this is a, that's the kind of a list of things that like make samsara suck. Um, but then we have to know what are the causes? Like it didn't happen on accident. There are, this is, this is what karma means, cause and effect, causality, that, that the things we're experiencing were caused. They're not, things are not happening at random. Um, and so the, the main three are um, desire, ignorant desire, ignorant aversion, which are both underpinned by just ignorance in general. Um, but here we have a list of 10, uh, the first of which is desire. Um, and that's, uh, you know, desire doesn't necessarily mean that wanting things is bad. What it does mean is that thinking that there are some self-existent quality in the object that is happiness making, as opposed to it's my perception of the thing that, that gives it happiness, that qualities of making me happier, qualities of making me unhappy. It's a quality of my perception. And so, um, so desire means that we're like, oh, my car sucks. If I had that other car, then I'd be in good shape. My job sucks. If I had that other job, I just need a better job. I need a better partner. I need a little more money. I'm kind of <laughs> hungry. I need some more food. Oh, now I'm too full. Oh, but I'm hungry again. But now the next meal, you know, that's then I'll be happy once I have uh, the chili reno was so-so, but what I really want is a burger. You know what I mean? Um, anger. Anger is a anger is a big one because when we're provoked, we say and do things that hurt others. And when we see ourselves do that, we know that we're hurting others, and that brings us that brings us suffering. Um, pride. 
uh, thinking that I'm more important than other people. Like, this guy is, he's the cool guy. And I don't know about the other people. Um, ignorance, uh, a lot of these are pretty similar. So, um, ignorance means thinking you understand how things are working and being wrong about it. It doesn't just mean, like, being, uh, just not, it, mean, it doesn't mean not knowing stuff. It means believing things that are incorrect. Um, destructive doubts. Oh, I love this one. Because doubt's not bad. Like, this is, again, part of the Buddhist scientific method. You have to have doubt in order to gain real benefits from your meditation practice. Because if you just say, oh, if I just, like, hold pictures of fairies and unicorns in my mind, eventually I'm going to be perfected and happy, is naive. You have to say, does this work... Is the fairies and unicorns going to work? Does the bodhisattva thing work? So does having a does guru yoga work? Like you've got to try the things out to see if they work. And if you just blindly accept what you're told, then well, for one thing, then you'll believe anything. You know what I mean? You're like you. Some guy passes through town and gives you some meditation to do, and you're like, oh wow, that guy's the best. And then the next guy who comes through the town, you're like, oh, this guy is the best. That other guy, what was he talking about? So you have to have doubt. You have to be willing to test it. But what this is talking about is destructive doubt, which is like, that's a bunch of bullshit. I'm not going to listen to that. I've heard it before, and I already know that it doesn't work because I'm superior to everything. And, you know, um, ignorance about our own nature. This is a pretty complex topic, but... Um, what they're referring to here is the idea that consciousness is not created at birth and not destroyed at death, that consciousness is a continuity and um, birth and death are transitionary states for consciousness, but, they're, um, but consciousness isn't destroyed. Um, but a particular instantiation like this body and mind has like that ego construct, the persistent self-identification habit that says Mojo's a person and like they're like I exist self-existently, I'm I'm here, I'm real, I I believe I'm real, um, and not recognizing that, you know, Buddhist cosmology, the Buddhist timeline, a lifetime is like a minute from what the way we experience things. From a boot from like the Buddha's point of view, lifetimes are like Oh, there's gajillions of those. Don't get overly attached to this one. Don't think that this one is especially important. You're, this life, you are the caretaker of a mind stream that is on a scope of time that is incomprehensible to your human understanding. And uh, so being overly, affixed, overly attached to like, I'm having a good day or I'm having a bad day is not hugely valuable. Um, instead, recognize that we're trying to cultivate this meditative state that allows us to have stability over many lifetimes. Um, belief in one of the two extremes. Um, the two extremes are um, materialism and nihilism. Um, nihilism, the idea that things are inherently meaningless, that there is no actual... Um, there are no actual values in the in the universe. Um, materialism that, uh, or or um, um, materialism, 
oh, I forget, there's another technical term for it, but um, the idea that meaning is fixed or that things are fixed, the, the way things are are the way things are, as opposed to the way things are is a subjective interpretation of sense, pheno- sense data, then the actual phenomena is kind of unknowable because there is no objective way to understand it. But materialism is the idea that there is a fixed, know- there's a, a knowable fixed world out there. Um, so these two extremes, Buddhism is called, often called the middle way, and, be, and it's because it says, well, there's some truth to nihilism, but it's not the whole truth, and there's some truth to realism, but it's not the whole truth. You kind of have to live in this place where you kind of accept and kind of reject both at the same time. Um, you know, each one of these is kind of a big topic in its own, so um, thank you for having patience as we kind of go through them very quickly. Um, the next one is belief in that one's wrong views are the best. Um, you know, believing that your own opinion is the right opinion. Um, that one, I think, is kind of easy to wrap our heads around. But uh, it's, I think it's a pretty pervasive one because I, I'm, I'm right. I'm right and everybody else is wrong. If you disagree with me, like... Well, I'm I'm right because I'm me. I believe that I'm right, and I believe and because and that's what makes me right, and that's uh, one of the causes of suffering. Life um, belief in excessive spiritual practices. Um, this is uh, straight again straight from Siddhartha Gautama. He um, was pretty anti-ascetic practices like extreme diets, um, starving oneself. Um, uh, you know, extreme physical, um, you know, people in India, I've seen photos of people who like bind their limbs and then they shrivel up and stuff like that. And then they say that it's some kind of spiritual discipline, but Buddha was like, that's not a good idea. You need to take care of your body. Um, and, and you need to balance your, you need to have, you need to take care of yourself so that you can really be focused and dedicated when you're doing your spiritual practices. You have to be healthy and and stable to do that. And uh, belief in wrong worldview, that kind of encompasses several of the other ones. Um, belief in one of the two extremes, belief one's wrong views are the best, ignorance about our own nature. Those are all aspects of belief in wrong worldview. And then contemplate how to get out of the suffering life. The, the, the three extraordinary trainings, the training of morality, which is ethical discipline, um, being very diligent about not harming others and being very diligent about helping others. Uh, we talked about this in the beginning about um, setting motivation. Um, harming others is what creates the causes for us to experience a, a world in which we are being harmed. And helping others, and so we need to stop doing that. Stop planting bad karma, in other words. Stop hurting other people. And um, start helping other people, do altruistic acts, take care of other people, protect life, practice generosity, um, don't, you know, uh, don't lie, always tell the truth, don't steal, be generous. These are like the negative, the negative things to avoid and the positive things to uphold. Uh, the second is the uh, training in meditative concentration, which is what the whole first half of the class was about. Um, learning to stabilize and focus our mind so that we can use our mind the way that we want to instead of being led around by a, a raging elephant and monkey. 
And then um, last but certainly not least is the training of wisdom. And the training of wisdom is having developed a sense of stability from the training of morality and learning how to control the mind through the training of concentration, we then turn our meditative concentration to something that really matters, which is how is the universe really working? How is my perception creating the world that I experience? To what degree is my perception creating the world that I experience? And how can I change my perception in order to change the world? And how is that working? Why is that working? And uh, learn to master that process. Because a Buddha is a being that has learned how to continually create the causes to have a mind that is omniscient, that understands all things, that is totally loving, that sees every living being as more precious than their only child, and who has ultimate compassion. They're willing to go to any length necessary to alleviate suffering from other beings. And that's how they create living in a, a paradise. That's how, you get, that's, that's how you get to heaven. That's how Buddha's... That's the Buddha's methodology for getting to heaven. You have to change the way that your mind works. Heaven's not another place. It, it's, it's here and now, depending on your ability to perceive it. That's the only reason that, that's the only reason that we experience a, a paradise or experience a hell realm, is because we've conditioned our mind to see the world that way. And so we're learning to meditate so that we can recondition our mind to perceive the world that we want to live in.